0: We'll be reading from Luke chapter 12. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. You may be seated.
1: Today we're starting a, a series of messages in the month of December called Grace Giving. Everybody, say grace, grace. grace. Giving. giving. One more time, say grace, grace. Giving. giving. Talking about grace giving and. Um, I'd mentioned just a second ago that I know that there are a lot of people here who are guests because of baptisms. And I thought about that all week, kind of knowing that we are headed into a, a few weeks where we're talking about God and money and generosity. And I know all the taboo stereotypes about, about the church. But I think for me as a pastor, there's a real conviction based on the fact that, like, we're just not as a society and as people, are just not doing well financially. We know this. We are the statistics. But um, you know, a third of all Americans are overdue in credit card debt. The average car payment's now over six hundred dollars. Um, in the state of Kentucky, forty-two percent of all debts are in collection status. Eighty uh, percent of of marriages that end in divorce um, say that financial strain is the reason, more than infidelity. Majority of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account and could not survive without their next paycheck. And we know we are these statistics. We know these statistics. And so, if there's any area where we need God to help us, it's in the area of, of finance and the area of money. Not because we want to go buy Bentleys, <laughs> not, not, because, not because we want to uh, live extravagantly, even though there are some extravagant things we'd like to have. It's because we, we don't want to go to bed at night and wake up in the morning feeling the weight, the financial weight of the world on our shoulders. And what I love about God and what I love about the Bible and the kingdom of God is that things in our lives that are, that are robbing us of life and are putting pressure on our shoulders, he speaks directly to. And, and so I, I love that we can talk about this as a church and as a pastor, I love that I can talk about this, but I don't want to just talk about it. Um, If you've been around Hope City long at all, you know that we want to try to be as helpful as we can and resource in any way that we can. And so one of the things that we have done for years here at Hope City is in January, we offer Financial Peace University or FPU. And at last count that I got this morning, over 150 families at Hope City Church have gone through FPU, graduated or completed FPU. So many of you have. And so we're offering it again this January. You can sign up on the app, get more information on the app. Um, I think almost all of our staff, if not all of our staff, have have been through FPU and our leaders. And we actually got a deal this year because we bought uh, registration in bulk. So instead of it costing $99, it costs $50. And so uh, I just want to encourage any of you who would say, you know what, as I get into 2023, I want life to be different, specifically in this area of managing my money, I want to encourage you to do FPU. You have no reason to be embarrassed about being a part of FPU because like, the person on your right and your left's probably already been through it. So you have no reason to be embarrassed, but I would love to help you take that step. And if you have any questions, let us know. Um, But it's a course to help you uh, figure out how to manage money God's way, okay? But I have been thinking a lot lately about this idea of grace giving. That's why we're taking these weeks to talk about it, grace giving, because I've been personally asking myself, how does grace change the way that I manage money, and specifically, how does grace change the way that I give and change my generosity? And here's what I mean. Week after week, I get up here, uh, and you hear me talk about grace, that we are saved by grace through faith because of the life and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we get credit for Jesus' life because he took credit for ours. And so now when God looks at you and he looks at me, he sees the perfect life of Jesus How many people have heard me say that before? Come on. If I don't say it, if I say it once, I've said it a thousand times, that's the gospel. It's not about us being good enough. It's about Jesus being perfect, and we get credit for that life. And if that's true, and it is, then that means that my my access to God, my relationship with God, my salvation are based on what Jesus did and not what I do, and that's a good thing. So what about generosity? What about giving? And here's what I mean. If, if what I give or what I don't give, or how generous I am or how generous I'm not, doesn't change the way that God sees me or how God feels about me or how God saved me. Because remember, God, I put my faith in Jesus. God looks at me. He sees the perfect life of Jesus. So if, if that's true, then then... then then if I give or I don't give, it doesn't change the way God sees me or how God saved me, then why should I give? Why should I be a generous person? And to be clear, you can be a Christian and never give a penny away for the rest of your life. Some of you are like, yes, I'm so glad I came to this sermon. Yes. You're going to remind your spouse, remember what Jason said. It's true. That you can be a Christian and never give a dime of your money away for the rest of your life, and it doesn't change the way God sees you and loves you and feels about you. It doesn't unsave you. I put that in air quotes because it's not a thing, but just it doesn't save you. It doesn't unsave you. Jesus is what saves us. The cross is what saves us. And all that's true. So this is what's been percolating in my mind. This is what's been running around in my head and, and just kind of been like I haven't been able to stop thinking about is that. All of what I just said is true. It's grace. So if I don't have to give, then why should I give? And here's a question. How much should I give? Because I don't have to give anything. So if I don't have to, then why should I? And how much should I give? And what a perfect time of year to talk about this because I don't know if you know this or not, but you don't have to give gifts to people. Did you know that? In your family, you don't have to give them anything. You'll still be related to them. Now, they're not God, so they'll probably hold it against you. <laughs> Sometimes you wish somebody would have given you nothing than give you what they gave you. You know what I'm talking about? They say it's the thought that counts, but that's not true. Anyway, so <laughs> But you don't have to. So why do you? And how much do you spend on them? Right? This is what we're talking about. We're talking about giving because of grace, grace. Giving. I believe and convicted that grace should change the way that I think about money and possessions and generosity. And so that's what we're talking about for these next few weeks, grace giving. And today, to get us started, Megan read us a story about a man who, for all intents and purposes, has it together. He's kind of the example of what we strive for. He's a business owner. He's obviously successful. He's a good saver and an investor. And at the end of this story, God calls him a fool calls him a fool, which is odd, because this guy checks all the boxes that we want to check. And so, if we're being honest, given the choice, we would want this guy's life. And even if I tell you that God calls this guy a fool, you'd say, well, yeah, but if I, I, could, I could do it better than he could. If I had what he had. You ever hear the, like, the stats about lottery winners who file bankruptcy, and you're like, I'd like to try to defy the odds. I mean, I feel like <laughs> They're stupid. I'm smart. So, like, I feel like I wouldn't file bankruptcy. So we hear about a guy who's a business owner and a saver and investor and has enough money to tear down his bar and just build bigger ones. He talks to himself in third person, calls himself my friend. And we think to ourselves, like, I, I, if I, I could do that and not be a fool. So it's worth considering why would God look at someone who has what we all strive for and call him foolish but to, to figure that out, we need to answer three questions from this story, and that's what we're going to do today. And the three questions from this story that we're going to answer, I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. You can write these down. It's how do you measure your life? How do you live your life? And what's left after your life? How do you measure your life? How do you live your life? And what's left after your life? And Jesus did not ask these questions verbatim in this story, but he implies them, and I'll show you where he implies them. And it forces an answer from you and me. So let me give them to you again. How do you measure your life? How do you live your life? And and what's left after your life? So let's look at each one of these for our time together today. The first question that's implied in this story is how do you measure your life? If we don't want to be foolish, how do we measure our life? Verse 15, he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Evidently, there are kinds of greed. We'll talk about that. Life is not measured by how much you own. So, so Jesus is implying some form of measurement or metric for us to gauge our life. And the question is what is the measurement? What is the gauge that we use? Now, why would Jesus feel the need to say this? Because he could have talked about anything. Why would Jesus feel the need to say, "Beware, guard against every kind of greed, life is not measured by how much you own?" Well, the reason is because he is answering a question. Jesus was asked a question, so he's giving an answer through this story, and the question that he was asked was about an inheritance that literally uh, someone came to Jesus and said, "We're having a family dispute because we've got we've to you know disperse this inheritance and and There's a problem, and somebody came to Jesus, and and, and they wanted Jesus to, like, reprimand his relatives, and instead, Jesus got to the heart of the matter and asked, why is this so important to you? Don't you hate it when the Holy Spirit does that? It's like, God, fix that person, and then instead of fixing that person, God's like, can we talk about you for a second? It's like, no, fix them, right? Right? And so Jesus says, beware or watch out. Beware, watch out for every kind of greed. Every kind of greed. A few times in the Bible, God or or Jesus will tell someone to watch out as a warning because there is potential danger waiting for them that they don't see. There's blind spots. there's, There's potential problems that they are not aware of. And nowhere in the Bible, I don't know if you know this, but nowhere in the Bible does God say, watch out that you don't lie. Or watch out that you don't steal. Now, those are things that we're not supposed to do. But why wouldn't he caution us for those things? Well, the reason is because we're not blind to them. We know every time we lie. We know when we do it. We know every time we steal. We're not blind to it. We know when we're lusting. But we don't know when we're being greedy exactly. It's something we don't see. It's a blind spot in our lives. And so Jesus, in this story and other parts in the Bible, says you really need to watch out because there are all different kinds of greed. And yeah, greed is, destructive, is as destructive as lying or stealing or adultery, but it is so much more deceptive because no one thinks they're greedy. Everyone knows someone who's greedy. Come on, how many people know somebody who's greedy? Let me see your hand. How many people sitting beside somebody who's greedy? Come on. No, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. We all know greedy people, but we're not greedy people. In all the years I've pastored this church, you know, I've never had anyone ever ask me to pray for their greed issues. Never. And I remembered first service, like on the spot. Sometimes this happens when you're preaching, you know, my mind's going crazy, but I do remember one time, very early on, I had just started pastoring the church. I was 24, 25 years old. And I did have a lady. Nobody's ever asked me to pray for their greed, but she kind of was without realizing it. This lady showed up at the church. True story. She showed up at the front door of the church. At the time, it was just me and one other employee. And so I would answer the door. And, and she was there, and she was holding her lottery ticket in her hand with the numbers. And she asked if I would pray and put a blessing on her lottery ticket. And a lot of preachers would have been so offended, but I said, absolutely, I will do that. Here's the deal, though. You got to split whatever you win with the church. <laughs> True story. I'll, yeah, we'll pray about that. But listen, whatever you win, let's, we're going to split it with the church. And she had to think about it for a second. Do I want half and God's help or all of it and not God's help, right? I don't know what she was thinking, but she thought for a second. And, uh, and then we prayed. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, like so. I prayed. I, first time, I've, only time I've ever prayed for a lottery ticket. Some of y'all pray for lottery tickets all the time. I, it's the first time I'd ever. I didn't know, you know. And some of y'all are like, "Would you have taken that?" Absolutely, we would have taken it. It would have been somewhere else. We wouldn't be here right now. But, but in all my years of pastor, nobody's ever said, "Pastor Jason, we, you know, I've just really, I'm just a greedy person. Pray for me. Just a greedy person. Pray for me. No, nobody." which is interesting because if you've been around church at all you probably heard a preacher say this before but it's true stat that Jesus talked about the money managing money the dangers of money 10 times true stat 10 times more than any other topic now he talked about it in a variety of ways and different stories and different things like that but Jesus talked about money 10 times more than any other topic and so here's what's dangerously ironic is that the the thing, the danger that Jesus talked about 10 times more than any other is the one topic that none of us think we struggle with. Think about that for a second. That we are naive or cocky enough to believe that, like, I know that this is the thing that Jesus felt like he needed to address 10 times more than any other topic, but thanks be to God, that's not my issue. And nobody thinks it's their issue because we can be blind to it. And the reason we're blind to it is because there's not one kind of greed. Jesus says there's different kinds of greed. And whatever kind you have doesn't feel like greed. It feels responsible. Or it feels joyful or celebratory or whatever kind you've got is a responsible kind. But their kind, whew. Right? And honestly, like just taking this story like face value, sadly, isn't it true that nothing reveals greed like a family inheritance? So many of you could tell that story. I mean, it's, it's so tragic that a family inheritance can rip a family apart. And so Jesus gets to address something real life. I love that about Jesus. I love that about the Bible. He addresses real life. And he says to you and me, how do he implies to you and me, how do you measure your life? What is the measuring stick that defines a good life? Whether or not you're doing good, whether your, your life is good. Maybe we should just do that exercise this morning. What if you found out today when you went home that you were inheriting $100,000 from a long-lost relative? You're not sad because you didn't even know him. and, and But $100,000 is going to be put in your bank account on Monday morning, tax-free. 100000 Cheers. Now, we all know that logistically, it would change our life in some ways. But emotionally philosophically, spiritually, would it change the way you see yourself? The way you compare yourself to others? Would the thing that you just thought of 30 seconds ago that you would buy right away, would it make you feel as if somehow your life was better than it was before you were able to buy that thing? I think all of us to some degree that would be true, but maybe for some of us, 100,000 wouldn't really move the needle. What about a million What about a million? Ten million. We could keep going up on this ladder, and what we will find out is that for many of us, most of us in America, this is not necessarily true in all the parts of the world, but especially true in America. The way that we measure is, is financial, it's status, and it's not necessarily you print your bank balance, I'll print my bank balance. Don't you love how the ATM now like makes you look at the balance first now? Hey, and they're like, it's not necessarily print out ATM receipts, but it is where do you live? What do you drive? What kind of shoes are you wearing? What what kind of investments do, do you have? What trips are you able to take? We use those as a measuring stick to define the quality of our life, how rich our our life is. So Jesus implies this question. How do you measure your life? Because greed, a great definition for greed, is simply using the wrong measurement, financial measurement, to measure your life. So how do you do that? If, if greed is just using the wrong measurement, I think all of us could say we're probably more greedy than we think we are. So what's the number that makes you feel like you have a good life? What's the thing, the item, that would make you feel like I would be content and I wouldn't want anything else if I just had this. Think about it for a second. Isn't it true, though, that whatever you're thinking right now, that it's changed over the years? I've shared this story several times, but preachers only have so many good stories, so I'm gonna tell it again, okay? But when Andrew and I were first married 18 years ago? Yep, 18 years ago. When Andrew and I were first married 18 years ago, we were living in a second story apartment in Monroe, Louisiana, broke as a joke. And I uh, eating spaghetti every night. And we were sitting on the couch one night, and Andrea said to me, I'm sure you've played this game, like, hey, if, like, when, like, if we ever, like, come into money, like, if we ever, like, make good money, like, like, later on in life, like, when we kind of are more successful and, like, we have more money, like, what's the, what's the thing that you would buy? Like, what's the thing you want? Like, you, that, like you, that thing you would be like, man, we've made it. you played this game before? I didn't even have to think about it. I already knew what my answer was. I wanted a 40 inch TV. <laughs> if, if, listen, if we had a flat screen, 40, now, 18 years ago, you could still buy the tube TVs, but then they had the flat ones, you know, and you can hang them on the wall, and they were a lot lighter. And I thought, hey, man, if, uh, I mean, if we had a 40 inch TV, like, why, what would we even need beyond a 40 inch TV? <laughs> and Andrea's like, oh, it wouldn't be a TV for me. I just want a bigger closet. I just want a bigger closet. So that night, we agreed that if we had a bigger closet and a 40-inch TV, we made it. We wouldn't want anything else. And can I tell you that I was shopping for TVs this Black Friday, and I filtered the search. I didn't even look for anything less than 65. Do they even make 40-inch TVs? I don't even know. I think they're giving them away, the 40-inch TVs. (laughs) Who wants the 40-inch TV? I have four TVs in my house bigger than a 40-inch TV. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't stop when I got that 40-inch TV and thought, this is all I've ever wanted. I just bought it and then wanted something else. Andrea's closet's enormous. We won't talk about it. But you know what she doesn't say? I don't ever want a closet any bigger than this. This is enough. (laughs) And you don't either. Because our measurements change. Our, our, Our measuring stick changes for us to feel as if we have a good life. And this is why we have to watch out because we don't realize we use culture's financial measurement for success or for what a rich life is. But that's not the measurement that God uses for success. And so, like with everything else, our soul and our soul, our soul we, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we're, we're not stuck or, or blind to, to what is really chasing after us in our soul. And maybe we're using money for, to, to cover up something or to cope with something. In 2006, atheist psychologist Jonathan Hat published The Happiness Hypothesis. And one of the book's most striking moments, Hat describes two people. First, he describes a man named Bob. And Bob is 35 years old, single, white, attractive, and athletic. He earns $100,000 a year and lives in sunny Southern California. He is highly intellectual, and he spends his free time reading and going to museums. And then Hat describes another person. Her name is Mary. Mary and her husband live in snowy Buffalo, New York. They earn a combined income of 40000 Mary's 65 years old, black, overweight, plain in appearance. She's highly sociable, spends her free time in mostly activities related to her church. She's on dialysis for kidney problems, has health problems, lives in relative poverty, and has no doubt endured a lifetime of discrimination. And Hat asks the question in the book, would you rather be Bob or Mary? Which sounds like a stupid question. But Hat says that based on a number of factors, including stable marriage and religion, a person like Mary, scientifically, on the way that they measure these things, rates as happier than people like Bob. And we hear that, and in our head, we believe it. And in our heart, we're like, well, I would do better than Bob. I'd be happier than Bob. But we wouldn't. And I'm not, listen, I'm not up here saying that a little money doesn't make a big difference. Of course, especially in areas of poverty. The Bible talks a lot about the need for us to share with those who need it the most. And we'll talk about that later in the series. But, but study after study after study has shown that beyond a basic level of security, increased wealth is only slightly correlated with an increased sense of well-being. Economist Jeffrey Sachs said in the World Happiness Report, which I do not even know there was things called the World Happiness Report, but in 2018, he said that income per capita has more than doubled since 1972, while happiness has remained roughly unchanged or has even declined. We're making more than any generation before us, and we're more unhappy than any generation before us. But we keep buying the lie, the measurement, the measurement, the measurement. But I'm willing to bet that you already knew everything I just told you. Because if I were to ask you, who is the happiest, most joyful person you know, it would not be the wealthiest person that you know. They're just the most content person that you know. So Jesus, right out of the gate, implies this question that must be answered for those of us who have received the grace of God. How do you measure your life? How do you define what a good life is and what are you striving for? But the second question that he implies to us is, how do you live your life? Because how you measure your life is philosophical. It's a deeply held belief about what you believe is true about the world and about money and about people. But what you believe is true, a deeply held belief, is going to eventually affect what you do and the actions that you take in your life. And so Jesus, in this story, he describes two ways that people are greedy now there's more than two ways but he describes two ways and the first way is the traditional way that all of us have no problem wrapping our mind around this is somebody who just is discontent can never get enough and they got to buy more and have more and brag about all they've got and you know we think about ceos and you know tech bubbles and bitcoin people who take people's money and whatever that guy's name is i can't remember But they don't see it as greed. They see it as, you know, well-earned or providing for their family or investing, you know, in better real estate. They're not greedy. They're just smart with their money. And that's one type of greed that's described in this story. But the other kind of greed is way more subtle and sneaks in the back door. And that is greed that's not as much about spending but saving. There's greed in security as well. You don't want a new boat. You just want a higher savings account be able to store up more stuff you can never have enough for a rainy day and you're not being greedy you're being responsible now why would this be considered greed as well because in both instances we are putting our hope and our trust and our security in something else other than God so like with everything else with our souls we have to be careful in both directions is my trust and my hope in what I'm attaining? Is my, ho- uh, my hope and trust in what I'm saving? And the Bible actually gives us a way, a non-greedy way, for us to manage money. And we're gonna actually going to talk about this later in another sermon in the series. But I want to go ahead and give it to you because I think it can kind of spur some thoughts already for you. But this is my summation. The Bible doesn't list it exactly like this, but if you put it all together, this would be what I would consider to be the Bible's money management plan, the Bible's financial plan for your life and for my life. Earn it honestly. Save it consistently. Give it generously. Invest it gradually. Spend it wisely. Enjoy it carefully. Earn it honestly. Save it consistently. Give it generously. Invest it gradually. Spend it wisely. Enjoy it carefully. This would be a summary of all the things the Bible says about money. And so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the series later on. But the last question that Jesus implies to us in this story. At first he says, you know, how do you measure your life? The second question, how do you live your life? Are you managing the money? How does greed show up in your life? But the third question is, what's left after your life? And look at verse 20. God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Not because he's going to kill him, but because he's saying, like, philosophically, like, you're going to die. Then who will get everything you worked for? And this is an important question that Jesus asked. It's a practical question that I want all of us to think about today. Who's going to get everything you've worked for? Have you thought about that? Everything you have is going to end up somewhere. And most of it will be in a dumpster. I know you think it's so precious and nostalgic and amazing and valuable. Your kids will not. Your grandkids definitely won't. You paid a lot of money for it, they're going to sell it for $2 and a quarter at a yard sale. And by the end of the day, they're just going to tell people if you've got a truck, you can have it. Right? I think my kids are going to want all my books. I'm building an awesome library. They're going to be, there's going to be a massive bonfire in one of their houses. <laughs> but we all have these things that we're accumulating, and we've heard the old proverb that, you know, you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul attached to it, of course. Money, house, clothes, car, retirement, golf clubs, every single thing you own will go somewhere. And some of you responsible ones are like, well, we already know where it's going to go because we have a will. And that's great. But what about them when they die or the people after them when they die? Because if you really want to trace this back and and tack it down, then you'll realize you don't really own anything. I mean, you do own it, but you don't really own anything. You're just holding it until someone else possesses it. Don't want to be morbid, but you will die at some point and someone else will drive your car. Someone else will live in your house. This is kind of weird, but someone else may wear your clothes. Someone else will spend your money. Your kids and your grandkids will destroy your things. That's true. It's inevitable for all of us. And we work so hard to get it. And Jesus implies This question to us, what's left after your life? Now, to be clear, Jesus is not against inheritance. The Bible is very clear, especially in Proverbs, that there is wisdom and honor in leaving an inheritance for your children. So just because it can reveal greed doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Jesus is is talking about a specific area with greed here and using the wrong measurements. And so if I could be as bold as to paraphrase The words of Jesus to this this man, God in this story to this man, I think you could say it this way. God's saying, you fool, there is no such thing as rich dead people. There's no such thing as rich dead people. And for somebody so smart, you're not very smart. Because you're only thinking about the life that you're living now and the wealth that you have now. Foolish. Verse 21, he says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. What does that mean? Does that mean that you cannot be rich and have a relationship with God? Of course not. I mean, you go back in the Bible, you look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, and I mean, you you can keep, I mean, in the New Testament, you got uh, Joseph of Artemis and Nicodemus and different ones. Like, that have a relationship with God who have wealth and so he's not saying that you can't be rich and you and you that rich people can't have a relationship with God and it's a good thing he's not saying that because statistically speaking every person in this room is filthy rich. We hate to hear that stat when somebody drops that on us like according to the rest of the world you're filthy rich because we don't feel rich and it's emotional and all, I get all that but if Jesus was saying that rich people can't have a relationship with God we're in trouble. Because we have like so much more money than the people he was talking to. So it's obviously not what he's saying. So what's he saying? Jesus is saying that if being rich is most important to you, you'll never be able to have a rich relationship with God. The measurement. If wealth and money and status and things is how you measure a good life, you'll never be able to have a rich relationship with God. And if that stings a little bit, you heard it right. Jesus in another teaching doubled down on this when he said that money makes a terrific servant, but it makes a terrible master. That Jesus was, he wasn't talking figuratively or metaphorically. He was talking literally when he said, you cannot serve, you can't take orders from God and money. At the same time, you, one, one will win out. This is what he's talking about. And one of the ways you can know you have a rich relationship with God is how you think about and spend and give your money. It's one of the ways. It's not the only way. Another way is how you treat people, love people, treat your enemies. I mean, there's lots of ways that we can gauge, you know, our heart for God and, the, and, the, and the, what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. But with the topic that we're talking about for this series, this is one of the ways that, that we can know if we have a rich relationship with God is how we think about, spend, and give our money. And this story challenges us who want to have a rich relationship with God to have an urgency about, about how we think about use and spend our money. And Jesus is saying, stop storing up junk. Stop using all of your money for earthly things, and I want you instead to use it for godly things, eternal things. This is what he's getting about, about life after death. And what if we were to change our mindset from earthly to eternal? What if there was a stat, and I don't think there is, and I love stats, I haven't been able to find it, but what if there was a stat for wealth after death? Well, how would you define wealth after death? What if we defined it as... We were able to measure how much your money has impacted eternity after you're gone. To which you say, well, how would you measure that? Now we're getting somewhere. What if we measured it by by seeing how long your money lasted after you died? You say, well, we already kind of have that, you know. But I'm not talking about 10 years, 100 years. I'm talking about 10,000 years, a million. I'm talking about the Rockefellers. I'm not talking about Gates. I'm not talking about the Amazon guy, I, I, Bezos. I, I'm, not, I'm talking about, what about 10,000 years? What about 100,000 years? What about a million years from now? Is all of this money and all of these hours that you've, you've worked, is, is it still around? You say, well, how would it still be around? Well, the only way it would be around is if it was used on things that are eternal, things that would never go away. To which you would ask, what things never go away? Great question, there's only two. According to the Bible, there's only two things that will never, ever go away. Souls and the church. That's it. The church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, and people's souls. So if we wanted to measure wealth after death, we would have to measure eternal impact. And we would have to look and see how much of our money and was spent on Reaching people's souls and building God's church. How has our giving, how has grace caused me to to, to, to make an eternal difference? And Jesus specifically taught that that generosity should show up in two ways. And we'll talk about this more later in the series. But it's being generous to the poor. There is no way. I don't care what political party you are or what, how you feel about poor people. You cannot be changed by the grace of Jesus Christ and read the Bible and not see that our, we are supposed to be generous towards the poor. Plain and simple. We give to the poor and we give to the church. We give to the poor and we give to the church. And we give to the poor because someone has a need that I'm capable of meeting. And we give to the church because the church is the best way to impact eternity. So as we end this today, I just want to challenge you with this question. What if you measured, what if you started measuring the eternal impact of your money? Listen, I bought bought cleats for soccer again this week. We got to buy stuff. You know, I get it. You know, we we bought a TV, much bigger than 40, you know, and I get it. I get it. But as we look at how it's, it's spent and we've experienced the grace of God, what if we measured our money and said, okay, how much of this money will still be around in a million years? And what if that became the measurement? What if that became the measurement? We're going to talk about that more in the weeks to come. But in just a moment, as we pray, uh, there'll be an opportunity. After, in just a moment, they're going to sing some worship. You'll have an opportunity to pray, and there'll be communion. And as you come forward, if you'd like to do this, you don't have to, but if you want to come forward and take communion, you have the opportunity to be reminded today that God was a giver. God is a giver. He didn't have to, but because of love, he decided to go all out. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave. Thankfully, he gave grace. He gave Jesus and we got grace. And so as you take communion today, be reminded that God is a giver, that God so loved that he gave. And let's let this be the starting point. We don't have to, so why should we? Love, grace, because God's a giver. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you gave your one and only son the best you had to give out of love. God, I pray for every person uh, this morning who does not have a relationship with you. They have not experienced the grace, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that today, this morning, right now, in the way that only you miraculously do, you would begin that process. Their heart would be open. They would know they need a relationship with you, a savior. Jesus Christ, the cross. But God, I pray for also every person here this morning who is a Christian. We have put our faith in you. We have experienced your grace. But it hasn't got all the way into our soul enough to affect that last part that we're afraid to let go of. And that is the way that we manage our money and think about our things. I pray that today, God, as we take the bread and the juice, that we would be reminded that you're a giver because of love, and love and grace would compel us to begin to give to things that will matter for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.